welcome to Story Conversations. Uh, I'm Simon, and as usual, I'm joined by... I'm Susan. <laughs> and, uh... Susan, tell us, tell us who we've got today. Well, Simon, you know that I like to refer to you as my partner in crime <laughs> when it comes to storytelling, but today our conversation is with Peter Tarshish who is an executive producer at A&E Networks and specifically um, engaged in the creation of true crime stories. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll hear a lot more about that from Peter um, and his own story. So welcome, Peter, to uh, Story Conversations. Uh, It's great to have you here. We'd love to start off by asking you to tell us your origin story. I understand you were uh, a high school English teacher and you've moved through a a journey into producing TV shows and true stories. So I'd love to hear all about that and your origin story. Okay. I was a plucky lad. (laughs) 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 That actually is from a... By, uh, we, Susan and I have children that went to preschool together. And Susan and her wonderful husband, Gary, uh, sponsored a newsletter from the, the small community of parents on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I had forgotten about this. Well, my wife hasn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, for this, we had to write our biographies. Ah. And... I wrote in my biography that I started with, I was a plucky lad, and I wrote that I played left field for the Yankees, and then I had a part, and I now know that this crosses a line, so I can't reveal the joke. I had a part in Last Tango in Paris, (laughs) which I thought was so obviously absurd that people would think it was funny. I thought that up until one of the mothers came up to me and said, My son wants your autograph. This was months later, by the way. I couldn't imagine why possibly she would want it. And she said, I said, why? And she said, because you played for the Yankees. (laughs) And my wife to this day does not know why she didn't put her foot down and say, you cannot publish this. Anyway, that is not my origin story. Okay, okay. Uh, I I was a school teacher, um, not actually by choice. I had uh, in college I'd written a play. It was a play that posited a world taken over by Walt Disney. It was called Disneysha, the Glamorous Globe, and there were two threads that ran through this. One were the Mouseketeers, and I think Susan. You're contemporary. Uh, 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 careful, careful. <laughs> you are so much fun. You're like the daughter I never had. Right. <laughs> but there were Mouseketeers who were, you know, the kids on the Mickey Mouse Club that we watched every day at five mm-hmm. o'clock. And then there was all of the Disney characters in a separate world on this mythical planet, Disneysha. And in it, Mickey was a fascist overlord. Walt Disney, who introduced it as he would introduce Disney World on Sunday nights, we played him as Hitler. Mm 
and the all of the kids were growing older and the two young cute kids Karen and Cubby were reaching puberty and their reaching sexual awareness is what destroyed Disney ship <laughs> so we wrote this myself and writing partner wrote this play it was in our little world of college a small you know college in upstate New York it was a big hit and we thought we're going to be professional writers and you know comedians uh, so we took a year, nothing happened. We wrote one other thing uh, and we sort of drifted apart. I went back home and they had built a new high school. Uh, so I started subbing at the high school and everyone in the high school, all the, most of the teachers were 20 somethings and it was a great place to be. So I got teaching credentials and I ended up being the uh, teaching English and ran the drama program there for 10 years. Nice. So at the end of that, 10 years later, I am in the New York State Retirement uh, Program now. I've qualified as a, you know, having taught 10 years. I get a retirement, by the way. I, I get my pension. It didn't cover my dry cleaning when we still went to work. But, <laughs> um, as a... Um, I, you know, I taught for 10 years and I was, I didn't want to grow old on the job. I didn't want to wake up and have burnt out. Uh, cause I, I love teaching and, you know, teaching high school kids, it's an incredibly spiritual age. You know, I know there's a whole raft of problems, but there is real commitment on, in high school kids. They feel deeply, they, you know, in drama, they were mm. incredibly gung ho. It was lovely. And I didn't want to wake up one day and just be dialing it in. So I decided I would leave. Um, I had had an opportunity to direct a music video. My older brother was in a band uh, and they did, you know, they did a music video. It was the early, early days of MTV. And we submitted it to uh, a, a contest called Basement Tapes. This was MTV's prom, grassroots promise to kids out there that anyone could be a star, that we're all MTV together. When you want your MTV, your MTV wants you too. Uh, so we ended up, you know, they winnowed down thousands of tapes to six in a night. And then they play the video, everyone votes, and the winner goes into the next round, which is a finals round. So we won, uh, surprisingly. And then we went into the finals round and we won again. You know, wow. so I directed this music video. It had some success. One of the things the band won was an EP deal with, uh, I forget the label, but it was, you know, they got the money to make an EP. And they also got the money to make a new video. So when they got the money to make a new video, they hired a professional director. Why didn't you put this story in the preschool newsletter? I mean, MTV would have almost been as big as the Yankees, but I, I digress. You know, I, I was a Yankee fan. Um, anyway, so I decided to try it. I, you know, I wasn't married. I hadn't met my wife. Um, I had a little money saved, and I didn't want to wake up at 40 and think I'd never tried. So I went out, and I spent five years wandering through the wilderness doing odd jobs. And then I, uh, through my wife, who 
who I had since met, uh, and she had started at Nickelodeon. We met some friends who were doing a show at A&E, a comedy show. Uh, so I went to these guys who were my buddies and I said, look, if you're going to hire a PA, hire me. You know, I was 40 years old, had a new baby, had no job. Uh, I will do everything. I'll get your lunches. I will, you know, uh, do all the scrub work, whatever you need, I will do. So they hired me and I just serviced everyone to death. My theory was (laughs) be positive and know everything you could know so that when people have questions, they begin to naturally gravitate towards you for Mm -hmm. answers. And at the end of it, Amy asked me to stay. You know, they uh, they were young company It was just A&E. You know, there was no history. There was no lifetime. There were no digi channels. There was no international. None of these things had happened yet. So I started off there as what's called a format producer. So I was cutting network acquisitions. Uh, You know, like we didn't have Columbo, but we had Columbo's wife, which was (laughs) a limited series. We had O'Hara U.S. Treasury. I mean, it was really, it was incredibly tedious to have to watch this stuff. But I was cutting out, you know, like two minutes of this and supervising edit sessions. Uh, and then we'd, we'd run with it. So I essentially just never left A&E. And mm-hmm. I have done in my time there every job in production and programming you could do. You know, I was the one of the because I can write, I was one of the first producers in the doc unit. When History Channel started, I supervised the daytime um, re reformatting of materials because essentially we took A&E materials and some acquisitions and just put History Channel markings on them. So Mm -hmm. I supervised all the formatters that were doing that work. Uh, international started. I didn't want to go there, but because I had had a, I had gotten a reputation as kind of a problem solver, you know, an adult in a space where there's a <laughs> lot of kids. I was made the director of international production. Um, I didn't want to do it. It was a manufacturing job. I didn't love it. I was there for ten years. Uh, I eventually became head of programming for Bio Channel, which was one of the little DigiNets, and. At some point during that time, uh, they were looking for somebody to take over the first 48. And they gave it to me, and I've had it ever since. And that was sort of my ticket into A&E as a programmer. So after a short stint at LMN as a programmer, Lifetime Movie Network, I went to A&E, and I've been there five-ish years Hmm. totally at A&E. You know, in our in our family of channels, great. And that brings us up to date. Wow, that's I, I, we we want to hear more about the current stuff, but I think what what well, we'd like to hear more about your work at Bio Channel. Um, you know, we we so often think we know the stories of famous people, um. But what are the surprising things that you learned about the process of producing biographies? You know, the challenges, the opportunities, the highlights. We've talked about a lot of the things you've done, but share with our audiences, you know, telling the stories of famous people. What was that like? You know, there's been sort of a central theme in my work as a programmer. 
And that is that a story isn't a recitation of the facts. A story is um, the finding the heroes, the villains, the life, the hooks. Um, in fact, it's not a recitation of, of events in somebody's life. It's the story of somebody's life. So you need to find a way in. You need to find kind of a theme to build it around. Uh, otherwise, people are just won't be interested. You know, the, certainly the surprising facts are important. You know, the best tagline in biographies, long history, and it has been around since the, you know, it was originally a Mike Wallace half hour series that A&E bought the rights to, and they bought the rights to the name, and they converted it to an hour. And then early on, they started stripping it. You know, it was Monday through Friday at eight o'clock. And that absolutely made A&E's uh, trajectory. That was the launch because it was by far the most popular show on cable television in its time. Imitated by everybody. Intimate portraits, behind the music, um, mm -hmm. ease true Hollywood story. Everyone had a biography format. But the most popular, the most appropriate and effective tagline is the people you thought you knew. Ah. Which is exactly, Susan, what you, you've been dancing. You're a marketer. You've been dancing <laughs> around that since the beginning. You know, so for me, it was things like we did a biography of Tom Cruise. Um, you know, I like some of his movies, but I can't say I'm a huge fan. And some of his public facing non uh, professional uh, story, I find a little questionable. Uh, so I could not say I cared all that much about Tom Cruise, but in it, he tells a story. Uh, I guess his parents were divorced. His mom moved a couple of times when he was young. So he moved during his junior high and high school years. Okay. I, I think I have that right. Um, don't hold me to the facts. Hold me okay. to the general positioning <laughs> on this. But I remember him saying, I always had the wrong sneakers. You know, he would get to a school. He would live there and have the wrong sneakers. He'd finally get the right ones that he'd move. And mm -hmm. then he'd be have the wrong sneakers for the new school. And there was something about that story that I have to say really touched me. You know, I think we all feel at some point in our lives like we're outsiders. Like mm. there's a whole party going on and we're on the, you know, we're on the other train. Um, so to think that about Tom Cruise just really made me feel differently about him. Mm. You know, so no doubt there are those little details, the things you thought you knew that are essential to it. But for us, you know, when I took over the biography series and I made, when I say I made, incidentally, I just have to say I supervise production. I'm not right. the maker. So understand that what I do is I protect the viewer experience. That's my primary job mm. is I want to be sure that the story that we tell is ultimately engaging. And anything that gets in the way of that, I note. Anything that supports that, I note on the positive side. 
So I, I have made, in quotes, hundreds of hours of biography. And the thing I learned early on was you, this is an entertainment based on somebody's life. So mm -hmm. you've got to find a s engaging story, a way to mm -hmm. shape up the journey that this person has been on. And it can't simply be this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Yeah. That's not enough. It's, it's, it's interesting <laughs> when you talk about that, when, when, we, when we think about biography, do you agree that a good biography follows a, an archetype of a story? So you've got the hero's journey, slaying dragons of adversity, all that sort of stuff. You know, were there things that, first of all, do you, is that something you recognize that when you are programming or creating or supervising these biographies, that actually following an archetype of a story, a traditional structure, uh, is one of the things that makes it compelling? Um, and, you know, have you, have you recognized those patterns in the in the programs you produce or those things that depart from them yeah uh, you know absolutely yes not not in classical terms we're you know i had an art professor in college and uh he was a you know I, a drawing professor who was fantastic a guy named arnold biddleman and I remember I'd, I was young i'd come up to him and i'd be full of all kinds of crazy notions Remember, this was the 60, late 60s and 70s, so we had a lot fueling our uh, the dream side of our can't think what you're talking about. Lives. <laughs> and he, he, you know, he would listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, and one time he's listening to me, and he says, Tarshish, you just don't get it. We're not about art. We're about pastrami. <laughs> you know, he was just saying, stop being so highfalutin. This is, you know, you just got to appeal to the people, for God's sakes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And th that is basically how I look at it. Mm. Uh, but I will say, Simon, that I always, one of the things that's increasingly critical to us as we start a project is, do you have a story proposition when you begin? Mm. And the story mm. proposition can't just be Again, this happened, then this happened, then yeah, this yeah. happened, then that happened. It's got to include, you know, winners, losers, victories, struggles, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, what obstacles we overcame, you know, who the people are, you know, what was the world in which they were working. All those things. And you've got to be able to state it in a sentence. Yeah. Another well, way I... I look at that. Go ahead, Susan. I'm sorry. No, no, no go ahead. Another way I look at it from my seat as a network executive, um, do I see the promotion? Can mm. I see the promotional position? Because if you can't enlist your audience in a tight sentence, a tight promotional proposition, you can't get them. Yeah. And that needs to be stitched into the storytelling. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Actually, that idea of the story proposition, um, relative to the work that you are doing now, particularly in the true crime genre, um, you are, you are, is it the term producing a, 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 a number of different series? First 48, um, which was, you know, first 48, um, I've just handed off cold case files in American Justice. I do uh, 
a couple of new series that we have coming out. The next one out is a series called First Blood, which is a series about the looks at serial killers through their first kill, also follows their killing season. Um, at one point, I did killer kids, killer teens, killer profile. <laughs> you know, I, I did so much. It, it was, it's funny because uh, Susan knows my wife works in children's uh, first television, but now she works in children's film and television. And there was one day that I was knee deep in blood as my days invariably <laughs> are. And I go out and she's looking at uh, a scene from a preschool show that they're doing called Gabby's Playhouse, which is wonderful, incidentally. And the scene involves a cupcake cat that cries sprinkles. <laughs> so here I am, you know. Yeah. I'll you, motherfucker. You know, you got to have the yin and yang, haven't you, really? Our two days, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dear. So, true crime. Well, it, yeah, and and you you started with first 48. That was my that was the first true crime uh show I did. Yeah. But these seem like they're more than just spin-offs. I mean, these these seem like you've you've touched something in the zeitgeist that's that's fascinated mm-hmm. with these stories that are quite dark, you know. They are. They are. They're as dark as they get. You know, first of all, it's important to me and important to A&E uh, that we recognize that what we're covering is the worst day in somebody's life. That it's a day they woke up, they got their coffee, you know, if they had kids, they got them ready for school. Maybe they were worried about some confrontation they were having at work or a presentation they had to give. Maybe they were thinking about, you know, possible lover that they were hoping, you know, would see them as attractive. All those things that we do in the morning, off they go, and then it turns as dark as dark can be. Mm. And the world shifts and will never be the same. Yeah, and that's true of both the victims and the perpetrators of the crimes, I would imagine. It is true. You know, there was one episode of After the First 48, which... um, that's the true spinoff, and that follows the case through adjudication, through outcome. For those most, the tagline is for those most affected by a homicide, the first 48 is only the beginning. Mm. And it was a scene outside of a courtroom after a guilty verdict with a father and a mother walking out and facing cameras. And the father says, Make no mistake about it two families lost their children today, Mm. you know, and that's true, you know, and increasingly we try to tell a 360 story Mm. on first 48. It's become important to us not to have people simply dismiss the cases as those people, um, but to see it as 
a community tragedy that we all share the same things. We all have wants, we all have dreams, we all want the best for our children. We're all struggling to get by. Um, so we're looking to broaden out the picture of the worlds that, and communities especially, the communities in which uh, you know our homicides occur. Actually, Peter, if you could, for those in our audience who don't necessarily know it, what is the what is the context of the idea of first forty eight? Okay, I'm um, going to start early, early, early in the genesis of first forty eight. The great Charles Tremaine, a colleague of mine, a, uh, a television executive on the production company side is driving into work one morning on drive time radio that he's listening to. He hears a story about the golden hour in medicine. Uh, the golden hour in medicine is in severe trauma cases. If the patient can get uh, significant medical attention within an hour, their chances of a positive outcome are exponentially increased. And he drives in wondering, if there is such a thing in crime. So he and a, uh, a producer who's working with him, a, a great artist named John Kim, went off in search of this answer. And they found that, and it's totally anecdotal, I don't know if there's any statistical base in this, and I hate to draw back the curtain on my livelihood, but <laughs> that uh, a lot of, really experienced homicide detectives used the 48 hour period that if they didn't get a significant lead in the first 48 hours after a homicide is committed, the chances of solving that were dramatically reduced. So that's the premise of the show. And for every show we, you know, once they're called, we start a 48 hour clock and we count it down, you know, and sometimes we get a solve within 48 hours. Sometimes it's months, you know, and when that clock zeroes out, we do a, uh, a recap of what happened in the first 48 hours. Wow. You know, uh, wow. But Thank we you. use the clock, which is, God, it's a gift to have a format <laughs> with a ticking clock. Mm. You know, in terms of story, a ticking mm -hmm. clock automatically creates stakes. And, you know, stakes are, you know, one of the critical factors in um in story definitely i know um, slightly different i mean the, the first 48 as you said it doesn't you don't always get the crime solved sometimes it will remain unsolved but a lot of a lot of crime uh biography crime crime uh, television we sort of know what the outcome is we know there's been a crime committed. Sometimes we already know who's committed it, what the outcome was. So, you know, serial killers, for example, a lot of them are famous stories. And yet we still watch and we're still interested in it, which, you know, proves this idea that the, the who done it or how done it is not as interesting as perhaps why. Why, why done it? Is that, is that something you, you agree with? And if you, if you, if you do, why, why do you think it's... Why do you think the why is so powerful in story? Well, I look at it in a much more functional way. I'm going to answer the question, but a little elliptically. Good. Um, 
I, every, for me, everything is about, as we said earlier, viewer engagement. Hmm. You know, that's my lifeblood. I, we either succeed or fail on how engaged viewers are. Um, in our, in true crime, it's my supposition that viewers engage because they want to be armchair detectives because mm -hmm. they, at least on one reason, you know, there's other reasons why people come to true crime, you know, uh, whistling by the graveyard. Um, we are, for whatever reason, we're hardwired to be mm -hmm. fascinated by the dark side of life. I, I think it might be, yeah. you know, it might be in our survival DNA that we look at this to know what to avoid. But, you know, getting back, it's in viewer engagement that's critical. Uh, and that means to me, play at home, you know, the armchair detective. Mm. So when I look at a show, I am always asking what's, supports viewer engagement you know the armchair detective what gets away in the way of it you know a typical note for me is um you know uh in shows that have narration when the narrator tells the viewer what they're about to see uh that disincents viewers from engaging they don't have mm -hmm. to because the tv is doing the work for them but if you lead them up to a point and then let the story unfold in your you know, in your interview and in your archive and your verite, then they're engaged because they are figuring out what's happening along the way. So that the viewer is almost participating in the development in their own heads of the story. That's right. right. And, you know, for example, uh, the first 48 viewer, uh, when they get to a crime scene, they wait for the cops to canvas for um, surveillance footage because they know that's a critical part and they are just waiting for that to happen. And they're waiting to see what evidence, um, you know, is uncovered through this. Uh, they, they are fully capable, I think of, of going to a crime scene, many of them. And, you know, <laughs> I was just about to say to, that, <laughs> but it, it, that's, there's a whole world of things that, that, um, are potentially supportive or destructive to mm. this engagement. You know, when music, when the music cue overplays the moment and tries oh. to tell viewers how to feel. <laughs> you are you are preaching to the choir with that one because yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am a composer uh, as, as a side gig and I, it, nothing frustrates me more than if a, if a, if a uh, music cue underlines my emotions too much. Or tells me, you know, I, I, I think it can help sometimes with, you know, focus in the, in the frame. But, oh, God, if it's, if it's too, too on the money, it's like, you've taken me out of the moment. You've, you've, you've destroyed it for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Music is there to support, not to mm. lead. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. what's critical. And then, you know, there's a whole array of things. You know, currently, um, we use limited recreation. You know, and, and I've been around long enough, so I've seen the arc. When I started, uh, you know, you could use little small snatches of recreation. If you were doing a show on the American Revolution, you could see a hand with a plume and a frilly cuff writing the Declaration of Independence. You know, that was Jefferson. You just see the hand. You couldn't see the actor. Um, and then there was no. 
you could not use recreation. It was verboten. And then it came back in in varying degrees. Mm -hmm. So we use, um, we don't use full body recreation. What we use in a lot of formats now, not in First 48, which is relentlessly authentic, but in a cold case files, for example, we'll use tableaus, you know, a mm -hmm. scene that could look like the scene, you know, um, essentially storytelling is a spell. And, you know, you need to intrigue viewers at the beginning and you need to take them along on, Simon, this journey that you were talking about earlier. Hmm. And anything that contributes to the spell is a positive. Anything hmm. that breaks the spell is a negative. So if they see a full body recreation, their bullshit alarm goes off. Yeah, that's bad. But if they see a tableau, it kind of seamlessly passes the story along so you can get to your interview and your archive and your authentic materials again. That's a really good point that, you know, you've got to, it, it, for us, it would be the show don't tell kind of approach. It's just, show don't tell is exactly yeah, it. Yeah. That's exactly it. Um, I, I'm fascinated with the fact that in, at least in First 48, you're as much telling the stories of the detectives who are working against that 48 hour clock as you are telling the story of the crime and revealing the mysteries behind the crime, you know? So it's mm -hmm. that additional level of storytelling about the detectives and you've, you've done it so compassionately and empathetically. And um, in some cases they are, they're becoming the heroes in the stories. Yeah, you know, do I have that right? Yeah. Um, in at the tenth anniversary, which is now about eight years ago, uh, we had episodes. We had episode orders up to two ninety five, um, and the producer, this John Kim, who I mentioned earlier, came to me and said, "Can't we just get to three hundred? You know, um, the ratings were lagging. It The series was feeling maybe a little tired. And I thought about it and I said, I could probably go to the network and say, let's do, let's just get to 300 because it's a story. Maybe somebody will write about it. But we could also come together and make it inevitable. You know, we could look at everything in the series, challenge it. We could kind of rededicate ourselves find new things to work on that'll energize the team. So we did, we came together and for me, it was simple. What I wanted is, um, you know, we we're a verite show. Hmm. When you see yellow crime scene tape, it's there to keep you out. But first 48 is inside that tape. Hmm. It takes you someplace you can't go and it does it with a camera. It's verite. It's truly, it is truly happening in real time in front of you. So we knew that that's the basis of our series and there's no way we ever wanted to um, move away or in any way dilute that incredible access. But I wanted it to play like scripted. You know, uh, I think scripted is, you know, the engaging format 
You know, the only thing more engaging to me, frankly, might be books on tape, really, or audiobooks, I guess we call them now. They're not on tape anymore. <laughs> um, but I like scripted. You know, I think that's really where, you know, where story happens in its purest, most engaging form. So one of the things that we did is, you know, often when a, when a series is feels a little tired, they speed it up. They speed up the pacing. They make things happen faster, and they think, you know, that's the way to greater engagement. We slowed it down. Mm. We spent more time with the detectives. We spent more time without comment as they went about their jobs in the field. We were more observational. And we stopped it, you know, we stopped it, and this is a recurring theme again. It had been a recitation of the events in a homicide investigation. And because we had a ticking clock, we had a built-in kind of story proposition, uh, but repeated time and again for 290 some odd episodes, and it became tired. Mm. So we dedicated ourselves to finding the story of that investigation. You know, finding the heroes, the villains, digging into characters so we could see how their behavior affects the uh, investigation, what were the hurdles that they had to overcome? You know, we highlighted those instead of just saying this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, to this day, if I get an episode of First 48 and the cold open is this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, I know they don't have story. And I know mm -hmm. we have to roll up our sleeves and go back at it. Wow. So, you know, an example of that is we spent about a minute and a half to two minutes, which sounds like no time, but in terms of a 43-minute show, it's a long time. And mm -hmm. if you ever clock a scene on your television, and I'm pointing to mine, <laughs> um, you'll know that two, you know, a minute and a half to two minutes is a long time. Yeah. We spent two minutes with a detective in Cleveland, an old guy, Nate Soa who was great and a fantastically effective detective, incidentally, um, trying to light his cigar in a moving car with the window open while he's driving. And, you know, he's, he's lighting missing, lighting missing, lighting missing. He finally gets it lit and he turns to the camera and says, I guess I know why people kill people on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> but that scene was worth it to us because... Yeah. It gave us Nate, you know, it gave us mm. more of Nate and well, you knew more and cared more. You said, uh, um, I, I think before we started recording the episode about the heart of story for you. That, by details. the way, was really the best stuff. I'm so sorry. you guys. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a before. whole half hour. Sorry. We were saying yeah. about how details really make the story. And that's the kind of detail that tells you everything you need to know about that character, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Um, we could go on talk about this for, forever, I'm sure. But in, um, the the last question we really want to ask you is: Do you have any favorite stories? And and given that you know the stories that you tell on TV are often dark, um, I've been told you have a legendary sense of humor. So maybe there's a maybe there's a funny story. Just don't tell a story about <laughs> me. <laughs> do I have a Uh, you know, uh, 
I had I had selected a quotation from a first forty-eight that I wanted to offer, and I didn't get a chance to. So I will use that. Um, God, story for me is so spontaneous that I don't have. Uh, you know, I can't think of a thing. Anyway, um, the tenth we did. One of your dad jokes would work. Yeah, one of my dad jokes. I've got a lot of those, but. <laughs> In this day and age, I am afraid to tell any of them publicly. <laughs> um, at the 10th anniversary of First 48, we did a special called The Case That Haunts Me. And we took, uh, we went back to several of our classic detectives from the early years of First 48. And we interviewed them and we found their, you know, what case they can't shake you know what case did they work um that just recurs and recurs with them and in the course of getting this there was a uh, detective up in minnesota his name is zimmerman not zimmerman zimmerman and he's talking about going to a crime scene and what it's like to go to a crime scene and he says the victim is laying there looking up at you. I'm reading this because I wanted to get it right. The victim is laying there looking up at you and he's saying, find my killer and you just have to do it. And that's sort of, that is the basis of true crime story right there. Cool. Very, Thanks. very great. Absolutely. Peter, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, oh, you could, Sus. <laughs> <laughs> you could find a way. <laughs> you already have. Just have Gary yeah. do our sighting. <laughs> that will be enough. Yeah. yeah you're, th- you're reciting your house and you want my husband to do it for you. Okay, I will negotiate that. <laughs> um, no, seriously, uh, we really appreciate you participating uh, in Story Conversations. And... We may have to have you back. You know, well, it's uh, been it's been delightful. Obviously, start me talking. I'll tell you everything I know. So, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, thank you guys. Another brilliant conversation. We're being spoiled with our guests, aren't we? We we truly are. Um, And you know, I love the fact that they're funny as well as um insightful mm. and um and, and well with with what peter shared with us you know the relevancy to our audience members who are in business i came away with the idea that peter said you know you've got to make sure that the story you're telling is ultimately engaging. It's mm. engaging to the audiences. Um, and, you know, I, I find our clients, our, 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 our common clients, our respective clients, so often get tied up in the idea of telling a story that they're excited about, but they fail to appreciate 
whether this story is going to be engaging to the mm. audience or the customers that they're trying to convert. Yeah. Um, and in par- part and parcel, it's what we always talk about, Simon, that you've got to start with narrative, then you talk yes. about story. Yeah, yeah. And storytelling. They want to skip to storytelling to, to make it exciting and without right. thinking about is does the narrative speak to an audience member does it does it connect clearly enough with them and i think that's that word engagement that you that you said i think that's really true and you can get so attached to the ideas or the content or the way that you're telling the story you know without without really thinking about um is this going to grab does it have right. relevance for an audience and particularly the audience that you want mm. to convert you know if if you if you're engaging an audience, but they're not your customers and you're failing to engage mm. your customers, it's, it's, it's not going to help you build your business. Yeah, absolutely. Another, another point that I think was interesting to me, just from a purely practical point of view, was he was saying that sometimes uh, you, f- you feel this tendency to underline a point too heavily. So he was talking about it in relation to music and how Which music is can... Something- well, yeah, your, your heart. <laughs> obviously, yeah. but when 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 that um, when a in a, in a story, if it's too signposted, if it's too underlined, sometimes we don't give it the attention it's due. I think the human brain wants to wants to create meaning and understanding. It's only wants to it wants to fit in the pieces of the puddle, puzzle itself, puddle <laughs> the pieces of the puzzle itself, um, right. and do a bit of the work. So you know, let let your audience member find the truth for themselves. Right. And, and too often um, when clients are in the storytelling mode, they feel compelled to tell every single bit of their story. (laughs) And what this often does is it derails the, the potential for a prospective customer to reach out and say, tell me more. Because mm. if you give them absolutely everything, including what it's going to cost on a monthly basis, you've basically eliminated the curiosity that, that, that will, will, and they'll, they'll think that the customer will think, right, I have everything I need to make the decision. And they may make the decision not to choose you. Mm. Without you being involved, an erroneous assumption. Yeah, absolutely. It's not. It's making the story uh, one way and broadcast instead of making it participatory. Right. Right. And the last thing that I found really interesting, relative to you know, a takeaway for our audiences, our business audience, is um, when Peter said when he's looking at an episode or a series. And he looks forward to how the network would promote it. He said, if I don't see a promotional position, a tight sentence that describes why the audience should care, I know that the show is not going to grab that audience. Mm. And, you know, so often in business, the the services that a, a client of ours would provide might be a little bit difficult to describe or to position in the context of solving a business problem but if if we when we're creating products and services if we don't think forward to 
how are we going to describe how this will make your businesses better? Mm. If we don't have that promotional perspective, ultimately it can be a Jim Dandy product, but you're mm. not going to sell it. If it doesn't sell itself. Well, well, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, and I think, you know, as, as audiences are more sophisticated, both for the work that Peter's talking about and from a marketing and business perspective, those audiences can see when something is snake oil, can see when something right. isn't going to deliver the thing they want. So, yeah, I think that's more important than ever. Did I really say Jim Dandy product? I think I mean, you just did. And I just said I'm, snake oil. That, yeah. <laughs> those are stories we're going to have to tell our we, We'll have to dive into yeah. those. <laughs> well, you know, um, Story Conversations is a production of Griffin and Skaggs Collaborative and Iambic Agency, represented by myself and Simon, respectively. <laughs> um, we publish our conversations with interesting people who hopefully will inspire um, bi-weekly and we hope to have you join us for listening um, sometime soon again see you soon